Guys, I say this as nicely as possible. I mean this with kindness in my heart. Some of you look sleepy tonight. Okay, here's, listen, it's okay though. It's okay. I have, I have a surefire way to fix this. Do you want to know what it is? It's a pro strategy. I promise it will work. You're going to feel alive and rejuvenated and it's not painful. Everybody, everybody take your hands, go like this. Okay, put them around your eyes and then go like this. Huh? Do you see how awake you feel and creepy you look? This is good. All right. If you're ready to begin tonight's festivities, please say, yeah, yeah. Oh, I love you guys. All right. Well, if you remember, last night we established a profound point, I believe we called it, and we said, do you remember? Everything sucks. Everything sucks. Well, we changed it because... Some of us aren't allowed to say that. Everything stinks. Oh, yeah, you're right. Everything smells, okay? And our point was that we're exiles, that we live in a crooked and depraved world, that the, this culture is hostile to Christians, that, that the gods, the things that are worshipped in our world are terrible and wicked and bad, and those are not our gods. Those are not our kings. This is not our culture. And this place does not have our best interests in mind. Yeah, kind of. Everything Stinks. And you can walk away from last night going, oh man, well, what do we do? How do if, as, if I'm going to even try to live as a Christian, how do I do this? You could say, this seems impossible. Ah, Mission Impossible, you get it, huh? But wait! Not impossible. The task of living as a Christian in a hostile, godless world is not impossible. It is difficult. But the, the reason I'm so excited about what we get to unpack tonight is because the Bible is going to introduce us to this guy, Daniel. And I want to be careful. Daniel's not Jesus. He is a sinner, and he messes up just like the rest of us. But as one living in a godless culture, hostile to Christians, he does a great job demonstrating how to do this resiliently, how to live this life and thrive as Christians when the world is against us. And so we would be big dummies not to unpack this stuff. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Daniel chapter 1. And we're going to pick up in verse 3. Daniel chapter 1, verse 3. Remember, it's okay to use your table of contents. You find that exact page number. Daniel chapter 1, verse 3. When you get there, what do you say? That's right. And a, and a hillbilly hello to you as well. Now, guys... Before we read the Word of God, I want to handle this with care. I want to be intentional, and I want, to, I want to fulfill that promise that I made to you last night each time we get together. I just want to give you a moment to process this. If tonight the God of the universe has something that he wants to say specifically to you, to encourage you, to challenge you, to grow you, to lead you, then just take five seconds and just prayerfully have that conversation with him and say, God, if that's true... I'm open to it, I'm ready, and I'm willing to listen. Go ahead and pray now. God, we love you. Would you lead us? Would you guide us? Would you get glory out of what you have for us tonight? We give you our time. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. 
All right, well, let's read. Here's what it says. Dan chapter 1, verse 3. It says, remember, we like this guy. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome. Oh, girls, why'd you get so quiet? (laughs) Showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. And then if you skip down to verse 8, it tells us, or I'm sorry, verse 6, among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief of official gave them new names, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But guys, we get very clear descriptors of who this Daniel guy is. You may not know this, but at tops, he was 17 years old. He was somewhere between 14 and 17 years old. This is you, you guys. We're told that, basically, in our terms, his parents are loaded, okay? He's showing up to school, I don't know, in like a Bentley with a chauffeur, and he's like, mm-hmm. but he's not super uppity. He's, he's like down to earth. He's nice. He's hilarious, right? Instead of saying, hey, he says, ka-chow, and everybody's like, oh, Daniel, you know? He's, he's not just smart. Like, he's president of the chess club. He's also like a starter on the football team, and all the ladies are like, ooh, yeah, like some of you in here, you, you, you know, you lip gloss fanny pack ones, you're in your back of your brain, you're like, I want to kiss Daniel. No! We're in the Bible, you guys. Be serious, okay? Golly. But this young Daniel, it looks like he has everything going for him. Everything has been handed to him. He's successful. He's smart. He's handsome. This is our guy right? And what I want you to see is what young Daniel is up against. Look at the second half of verse 4. We're told um, that this guy, Ashpenaz, was charged with teaching. He made this program for for these young people. It says that he was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. Remember, all these young Israelites are captives in wicked Babylon. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. And so there's a couple things that I just want you to see. I want you to feel the social pressure that these young people would have felt. They don't have a choice. They have to mandatorily show up and learn about all of the Babylonian literature and learn the Babylonian language, which means what's being crammed down their throats is you have to think like us and you have to talk like us. Guys, in this Babylonian literature, they're not just reading poems and that kind of stuff. They're taking like witchcraft classes. Like, I don't know if this is like Harry Potter stuff where they're learning how to like, e pluribus unum, and a cat turns into a plant, you know? But this is not stuff that goes with their culture, with the way that they follow the one true living God. This would have flown in the face of everything they knew and everything they were supposed to be as Christians. There is lots of social pressure here. We're also told, while we were about to read it, let's read it right now, um, that the chief priest, he gave them new names, right? To Daniel, he gave the name Belshazzar, which, you know what, let me give you some smart guy stuff. This is one of my favorite commentaries. His name is Dr. David Guzik, and he tells us what this name transition means and what the significance is. The name Daniel meaning God is my judge, was changed to Belteshazzar, meaning Bel's prince. That was Babylon's pagan gods. 
The name Hananiah, meaning beloved by the Lord, was changed to Shadrach, meaning illumined by the sun god. Look, shall we continue? The name Mishael, meaning who is like God, meaning no one is as big or good as God. His name was changed to <laughs> who is like Shaq. That was one of their gods. That's pretty cool, huh? They loved the NBA. Just kidding. The name Azariah, meaning the Lord is my help, was changed to Abednego, meaning servant of Nego. Their names are changed from names that honor the one true living God of Israel to now their names are changed against their will. They don't have a voice in this. Their names are changed to honor these false demonic gods. What's the social pressure that is being forced on them is not just think like us, think like us, talk like us, talk like us. It's we also want your loyalty. You don't need to be loyal to your God. Be loyal to the things that we value, to the direction of our lives. This is all of the pressure that's mounting for them. And then this other one, we're told, this one's kind of interesting, the one about their food, right? Did you guys catch that? The king assigned them a daily amount of food, this is verse 5, and wine from the king's table. What? And you're like, are you, you going to tell me this one's bad? That sounds awesome. Like, I don't know what a king ate back then, but if I was a king, I could tell you my table would have some perfectly cooked medium rare smoked tri-tip, some filet mignon. Guys, there's going to be some sushi on this table, unlimited yogurt barn, frozen yogurt with all the toppings. Like, woo, we are, ooh. But what's fascinating to me, and we'll talk about this in a little bit, is that this was actually the one that Daniel took issue with. And for now, I just want you to catch this. The social pressure they're feeling is abandon your God, talk like us. Abandon your God, think like us. Abandon your God, give us your loyalty. Abandon your God, change your lifestyle to our lifestyle. Aren't you so glad we don't face those pressures today? Oh, phew. No, we do face those pressures. Raise your hand if you have faced pressures like that in the world today, right? Yeah, it's everywhere. In the world that is hostile to Christianity today, again, we find ourselves in the same position. And what I want to talk about before we get into the rest of this passage, in a minute we're going to see how Daniel responds to all this pressure. As someone 17 or younger, why he's a great example for us. But before we get there, I want to just acknowledge that Daniel's kind of the exception to the rule. I want to talk about how most of us actually respond back then and today, because realize, we, we got a small, like these people are listed by name. How many people are going to respond well to the social pressure? What's the number? Well, it's four of them, yeah. But how many others just went with the flow? How many others completely caved? How many others said, oh, disregard my God? Okay. Oh, compromise? Oh, okay. Oh, cave to the social pressure? Okay. The vast majority of them, same as today. And you guys, the reason this is so important, we're getting right into application early on, is because this is a huge deal to God. Not because he hates us or because he measures us, but because he has something so much better for us. And I wish I could stand up here and be an example alongside Daniel and go, guys, let me show you what a successful life looked like. A resilient Christian resisting the wicked social pressures of the world. But I can't. I look back on my life as a junior higher and that block of three years is just total regret. Because in every single social pressure that I faced, I caved. 
I caved to, hey, you're invited to this party. Oh, no way. This is what the world values. Maybe I'll be accepted. Hey, here's a red solo cup. Drink what's in it. Oh, no way. Maybe this will be where I can find my contentment and my, my fulfillment. Hey, you're getting made fun of for not having a girlfriend. That's a great reason to go get a girlfriend. Great. Now I have a girlfriend. Hey, you're dumb for the way you dress. Now you need to dress this. Guys, I changed everything about myself. I changed my haircut. I changed the sports teams that I rooted for. I changed the way that I looked. I changed the way that I walked. Like, I thought I was a gangster. You know how they walk like with a limp? Like, some of them really got shot. But as a seventh grader, I was like, I think this is what you're supposed to do. And so I, you know what I mean? Like, and I got to a point in my life where there was none of me left. The personality God had given me, the strengths that God had given me, the heart that God had given me, I had so abandoned all the markers of God in my life to so desperately try to gain acceptance by caving to the world's social pressures that there was none of me left. God has something better for you. This is not the way that we're supposed to live. And guys, I look back on that period of my life, and, and it's crazy to think about because it's not just I wish I wasn't that. It's I realize the opportunity squandered. Because like me, I don't, I, I don't know if people talk to you about this often, but junior high is really hard. Would you agree? Like, can we be vulnerable for a little bit? I remember with angst the amount of insecurity I felt they're like, I'm, I'm kind of figuring out who I am and what I'm about, and I'm so open and I'm so moldable that anyone would speak anything into my life, and I'd be so sensitive to like, oh, is that who I am? Is this where I should go? Is this what? And you know what I did with that as a Christian? I didn't reflect Jesus at all. I didn't stand firm at all. In caving to every single thing, I wasted an opportunity to live a life as a junior higher that mattered. I wasted an opportunity to be a light to all the other insecure kids around me because I had the thing they didn't have. I had the thing they desperately needed, and instead of standing firm, I caved like the vast majority of everyone else, and I was worthless to the friends around me. Guys, I, I didn't plan on, on talking about this, but while we're here, I, my biggest regret in junior high is this. I had a friend who, uh, his parents didn't go to church, none of them knew the Lord. I would spend the night at his house every once in a while, and I remember I would spend the night at his house in elementary school, and his his parents would smoke these cigarettes that I had never smelled before. They smelled like, like dog poop. And I remember being like, what is this? His parents would fight. And, like, I would spend the night at his house, and we'd play video games in his room, and we'd go to sleep to his parents yelling in the background. Like, he had a hard, volatile childhood, but he never did the things he, his parents did. He never got into drinking because he saw what it did to their marriage. He never got into smoking weed because he saw what it did to their marriage. And as a seventh grader, as I caved to every single social pressure, the Christian, do you know what I did for my friend? Instead of showing him the light and love of Jesus, I was the one who introduced him to weed and made it an issue for him. Like, what, what was I doing? What, how do you live in a crooked and depraved world? It's not the way that I did it. We do not want to be Christians who live with, with regret in our adult years because when we were faced with social pressures of a wicked world, we caved instead of honoring God. I am the example of caving, and I'm ashamed of it. I tell you that with hope that you wouldn't do what I did. But maybe some of you already have. Maybe some of you just hearing my story isn't enough to make you go, I think I'm not going to do that. I actually want to talk with you a little bit about the why. What I think was going on in my heart and maybe has gone on in your hearts and previous generations of junior hires into why we allow ourselves to so quickly forsake and walk away from our God and cave to social pressures of a wicked world. I think it's because our view of God is too small. 
Like, I vividly remember this picture that my grandma had of Jesus above the oven on her wall. Can I show it to you? Look at him. There he is. And you know what I remember thinking as a small, small child? Who is that bearded lady? Like, like there's some blush. I don't know if that hair has done at a professional salon. That may not be a Snuggie. Like, he is whispering sweet nothings to this baby lamb. Oh, woo, 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 baby lamb. And as a little kid, even before junior high, you know what I remember thinking? Who's this guy? He's not worthy of my time, attention, sacrifice, devotion, any of that stuff. To the degree... I was, I was at my grandparents' house out in the boonies one day at their, like, grandparent church, and I was in a Sunday school class, and there the Sunday school teacher was like, hey, boys and girls, raise your hand if instead of going to hell, you want to go to heaven and be with Jesus forever. And everyone raised their hand except for me. And the teacher was terrified. She was like, what? <laughs> Little TJ, why don't you want to go to heaven? And I said, I was thinking about this guy, and I said, Pfft. I'd rather go to Disneyland with my grandma. Like, there are 20 other things I can picture rather doing. Like, this is not impressive. And guys, I'm not making fun of God. I am making fun of a false view of a small God that is not accurate to the God of the Bible that we serve. Can I show you an accurate view of our God in his majesty and in his full glory? Okay, I'm going to turn to Revelation 2.19. But before I do that, I just I want to tell you maybe where I think this view of God comes from. In Philippians 2, it describes it perfectly. It just, it says it like this. Philippians chapter 2, um, it's describing Jesus, verse 6. It says, Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And some of us, our view of God is so limited only to the 33 years or just the three years that he did ministry on earth where he set his power aside, where he fully limited himself, the Bible says. He's not in his full majesty. He came to self-sacrificially die on our behalf. But that's not the whole picture of God. That was a great picture of his love. But if you have allowed yourself to have a small view of God because you view him as this cute, nice guy who's like, please don't sin. It hurts my feelings. It makes me cry at night. That's inaccurate. Let's, let's uh, go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 19, okay? My goal is to give you nightmares for the best reasons right now. <clears throat> Revelation 19, verse 11. It says, I saw, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. I'm getting the tingles right now, you guys. With justice, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. Is that a tattoo? I don't know. He has dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean, out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will, oh, I love this part. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Ugh, that's my God. The reason I love that last part 
is because of the picture that it's giving. It's saying in this moment when Jesus comes back to judge the living and the dead, he will make all wrong things right. All the travesties, all the terrible horrors, all the wretched sin that has been done against people, the murder, the violence, the atrocities. Jesus and his goodness will come back and in full power, in full sovereignty, as we said last night, repair all things as the highest and best being in existence. And the picture that we get is that he will tread the winepress of the wrath of God Almighty. Do you know how they made wine back in the day? They would get grapes and they would stomp on them. The imagery here is that the bad guys' heads are grapes. And Jesus is going, justice. What? This, these pictures are not the same, right? That God is awe-inspiring. That God, I go, you have my allegiance. What do you want to do? Give me my marching orders. I am in. I will follow you to the end of the earth. You say do this, and I'll do it. You say don't do that, and I won't. And it's not about rules. It's about who you are. I want to be with you in your power. I want to know you in your power. The fact that you would take any interest in me, I'm all in. That is so different than the way most of us view God and respond to God. Do you see maybe the problem we have, why we might go, eh, I think I will give in to social pressure. Not if that God is real. Would you agree? Yeah. Oh, sorry guys, I got a little preachy there. I was, just, <laughs> I was getting pretty excited, okay? All right, well, ooh, we're gonna tone it back down. We're gonna get back into our passage. Here we are, look at this, here we are, Daniel chapter one. Here's the part that I want you to see, verse 8. This is why Daniel is such a great example for us, in contrast to me in the way I did my junior high years. If you guys take notes in your Bible, I'm going to give you a couple things to underline. But Daniel, verse 8, resolved. Underline, circle, highlight, resolved. Not to defile himself. Underline defile. I'll tell you what that means in a little bit. Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief priest for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king who's assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head. He would decapitate me because of you. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief priest had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables. Do you guys love vegetables? Oh, okay. Mixed crowd. All right. <laughs> okay. Please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food. And treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this te and tested them for 10 days. Here's what I want you to see so far. A couple things. The first one is this. Daniel resolved. How do we get to a point where we don't just cave to social pressure? I want you to see what the answer is not. I'm going to tell you what this word resolved means and why it's such a big deal. But the word here is not fight. Right? Sometimes we think these are our only two options. You cave, you go with the flow, you completely give in, and there's no godly evidence of anything Christian in your life. You're just like everyone else. You cave. Or you fight. Right? Like, like we believe this notion that as Christians, the world does something we're not supposed to do, or someone's cussing, or they're like, hey, do these drugs. And you go, 
never, you terrible heathen. And then we spit in their eyes. I hate you. I will fight you to the death. Like, that's not what we're supposed to do. The example that Daniel gives us, well, we're told that, that he resolves. The solution is not to fight. That's not what we're called to. We're obviously not to cave, or you will end up with regret the same way I did. We're called to godly resolve. Resolve means standing firm in what we know. Standing firm in our relationship with God and all he calls us to be. And then he gives us a picture of what godly resolve looks like. Guys, godly resolve here, it's actually polite. Did you notice that? He asks the guy, he's like, hey, I don't want to be a bother. I know there's a lot of pressure on you. We're feeling a lot of social pressure too. Is there any way I could, we could, I could eat different food? And why does he care about the food and not the other stuff? Think about it. He could sit in a, a Harry Potter class and learn about these guys' weird witchcraft. It's not forcing him to disobey God. He knows who he is and what he believes. They can change his name. They can call him whatever he wants. That's not forcing him to disobey God. But he stands with godly resolve and goes, if I eat that food, God for my people, he's called us to be set apart, to be holy. There's certain things that we can eat and that we, that we can't eat. We don't know exactly why for this. It may have been that these, these foods they were giving them were sacrificed to some of their demon gods or pagan idols or whatever. And he's like, whether it feels big or small, my God says no, and I have godly resolve. I have chosen ahead of time. I, I won't cross that line. Guys, that was my problem. I didn't have any resolve. I went with the flow because I never decided ahead of time. I never made up my mind, I'm going to honor God. In the future when I'm tempted, in the future when I want to cave, in the future when I, I am going to choose to say no because I believe God is bigger, his opinion matters more to me, I'd rather follow what's right than be approved for what's wrong. I, there, when I was a youth pastor, there was the, our worship pastor had four little boys, and they were like, like little midget men, they're like, yeah, and they would attack each other. It was awesome. But I, I was so inspired. They had this phrase. Their dad would be like, what do we say? And they would go, we do what's right because it's right even when it's hard. And I would go, oh my gosh, those guys are warriors. This is awesome. But that's the character of a Christian. We're not supposed to be spineless cowards who just bend to whatever is cool or bend to whatever's shiny or just do what everyone else is doing. And it's not because we're supposed to be some prudes who look better and look down on everyone else. It's because God has something better for us. He has a better plan. We, we kind of talked about this, but to say it in a different way, what would you expect a broken, heart-wrecked world to produce if you follow everything that they offer you? Emptiness, hollowness, regret, Right? I got to the end of my three years of junior high having caved to every social pressure. Do you think I felt more satisfied, more happy, more confident? No, I was a bigger bundle of delicate insecurity than when I started. God has something better for us. We stand fast, not just because it's rules. We don't just choose godly resolve because we're supposed to. It's because we understand that it's better. And part of that, <laughs> I want you to think about this. If, if you're honest with yourself, one of the things that, that we do is ridiculous and no one talks to you about it. Here's what I mean. I've kind of laid out who the, who the God of the universe is, right? We saw him in all his glory in Revelation chapter 19. Do you realize that most days you care more about what a seventh grader or an eighth grader thinks of you than what that God of the universe thinks of you? Like if these two were gonna fight, <laughs> who would win? 
Like the God of the universe has eyes of fire and a sword coming out of his mouth. And this cool seventh grader that you're like, oh, I just want to impress them. They have like a partially grown in mustache that grows up. They yell at their mom and get spankings. And two years ago, they were wet in the bed. Are you serious? Whose opinion do we really care about? Guys, as Christians living in a world that's hostile to us and our God, one who shows up with resiliency, who has godly resolve, understands this. We fear God more than we fear men. Let me say that differently. We fear God and not men. And fear may be a weird word to you, but I, I want to show you there's, there's a verse that just, uh, it puts this perfectly. Here's what it says. This is 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 through 17. Look, my wife wrote these out for me so I could read them. Oh, hey, don't make fun of me. Here's what it says. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who has called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. This is my favorite part. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. I love that phrase, reverent fear. Guys, this is how I would def define reverent fear to you. You know you have reverent fear towards someone or something when you really respect them, when you really admire them, when you think so highly of them that you're almost intimidated by them. When you have a healthy awe of them, like, oh, man, they are awesome. And even in that definition, some of you ascribe your reverent fear to a fellow kid. Are you joking me? The God of the universe is the only one that we should give our reverent fear to. He's the only one that we should be concerned about what he thinks about us. What's the name of this band? Whoa, I kind of like that. Do you know what I'm saying? When we live our lives, when we make our decisions, when we choose what will the strength of our character be, we are doing it not to impress the world, not to gain brownie points because those don't matter. The whole thing is crooked and depraved anyway. We are doing it for an audience of one. Do you agree? If you agree, say, capiche. Oh, you guys. Can I read you some more verses? Okay, listen to these and prepare to be motivated. Here we go. Proverbs 16, 7. When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord... He makes even his enemies live at peace with him. Colossians 4, 5. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Daniel didn't cave and he didn't fight. He had godly resolve and he did it in a nice, polite way that wasn't weak. It just very clearly communicated, I'm not trying to make you feel like you think I'm better than you. He cared. He had concern for the plight of the guard. He doesn't just say, I demand you let me eat different food. He showed up and he said, he got creative, right? He's like, how can I honor my God unwaveringly with resolve and not put you in a weird spot? Hear me out. What if, what if you just give me a test for 10 days? And if it works, great, let's keep going. If it doesn't, I totally understand you have to do what you have to do. Isn't that incredibly loving and kind? That's what godly resolve looks like. He knows who he serves. He knows what he's going to do. He's going to stand firm and he's going to do it with all care and gentleness to the people around him, whether they believe in the same God or not. I love that. Okay, here's the point that we're going to end with. Here we go. 
The two things we're talking about today that we see from the example of Daniel that a resilient Christian must do in a hostile world. We have to fear God and not man. I think we've established that. If you agree, say yee yee. All right, here's the second thing. We must hide God's word in our hearts. We must hide God's word in our hearts. And guys, this, this has the potential to be the worst ending to a camp talk. Because you know what it should be, what the stereotype is? Read your Bible. Read your Bible, and if you don't, you should feel guilty. Go read it until your eyes bleed. Now go home. Now go to your cabin. That's not what I'm saying. That is not what I'm saying. I have a friend. Uh, actually, she's more of a role model, really. Her name's Sherry. I respect this lady so much. And she, she articulated this so wonderfully. Basically, she realized that it wasn't just the social pressure of the world, but all of the inputs that the world was putting into her, right? These negative messages. You got to look this way. You got to be this successful. You got to impress people. You got to, all these things. She found herself continually just feeling beaten down and unworthy and insecure and depressed. How much resolve is left when the world has shrunk you down that small? Not a lot. And you know what she decided to do? She would use the word of the one true living God to push back on that social pressure. And I just want to read you some of the verses that she would make into three by five cards and she would put on her bathroom mirror. Or she would write and put it in a three by five card on the dashboard of her car when she drives. And it was her way of just going, no, godly resolve. He's the only one I care about. He's the one. I want his input determining who I am and what I do and how I feel, not the world and its wicked social pressure. Just, I'm going to do an experiment right now. I want you to think consciously, not just about what these verses mean, but maybe how they make you feel. See if these change your sentiment, okay? Romans 8, 35 through 39, it says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Verse 38, it says, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor the present, nor the future, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is 1 John 3.1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Here's the last one, Psalms 103. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things. Does that do anything inside of you? Do you think if you did that day in and day out, that might feel a little bit contrasted to the endless scroll on Instagram or YouTube Live or TikTok, to the constant videos or pictures that your friends are posting of their new haul and how much stuff they got and how much money it spent and how cool they are and the new cuss words and the you don't do this so you're dumb and the making fun of people to feel cool. If you want to be a person of godly resolve who doesn't have three years of regret in junior high like me, you want to live a life as a junior higher and not wait until heaven. Yes, we live in a wicked, hostile world, but right now, you can live a life that matters. You can live a life that honors God where you're a light to the people around you. Fear God, not man, and hide his word in your heart. That is what a resilient, God-honoring Christian looks like.
and it's inspiring. Let me pray for you. God, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your care and your guidance and your intent with us. God, thank you that we can trust you, that you want to refine and grow and use us for your glory. God, I pray for every student in here that you would get, lives, get glory from lives that don't cave to social pressure, but that learn and grow in godly resolve for your glory and for their blessing. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen.